for this episode of See Here. Children by the million sing for Alex Chilton. And we hope they fucking listen to See Here. Episode 26 of the See Here podcast, and we hope that you're in love with our podcast. Gosh, I'm getting some sort of sense of deja vu, maybe from another podcast. Anyway, hello, my name is Morris. You're listening to See Here. This is the podcast where we talk about films that have music in some way, shape or form as their subject matter. And as ever, I am joined by my panel of film and music experts. I am privileged to be talking with the man from Bath, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening, Bernie. Oh, it's morning. Uh, Good morning. Yes, good morning. Good evening to you both and uh, good morning from me. And good evening to the man in Seoul, South Korea, the man with the mostest, Mr. Tim Merrill. Good evening, Tim. Bernie's got a boner and it's out of control. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, Bernie yeah. had his tonsils out. Yeah, that's right. That too. So in case you hadn't guessed from those uh, little oblique references that we had there, listeners, we're going to be talking about a little documentary from 2011 called Color Me Obsessed, a film about the replacements. It's uh, directed by a fellow called... Gorman Bechard, am I pronouncing that right? The best of your yeah, go, yeah, Gorman Bechard, yeah. Gorman Bechard. Now, this is the last of the 2015 requests. You might remember, if you're on the Facebook group, or maybe if you've just been listening to the show, that we asked our listenership to you know, come forward with some requests. We thought, well, you know, we'll pick some of our own films, but we wanted to know what films you wanted us to discuss. And so, uh, unfortunately, poor Eric Reanimator, he had to wait till this year because, you know, a few other things got in the way, but we finally got round to uh, discussing the film that he recommended, and that's Colour Me Obsessed, a film about the replacements, a band that we all love. Now, the question is, is it a film that we all love? Well, what we'll do is we're going to go and play you the trailer for the film, and then we'll come back and discuss what we thought about the film. And even Eric has gone and provided us with some questions, which I'm sure will come out in uh, the discussion. But anyway, you're listening to See Here, Episode 26. We'll be back in a moment. I remember thinking two things very vividly. First, that they were the worst band I'd ever seen. And second, that they were the best band I'd ever seen. You could go see them on one night, and they'd be blindingly brilliant close to a religious experience. You could go see them on another night and they could just be complete dog shit. They were a glorious mess. But music like The Replacements is, you know, about engagement with your own imagination and hope and disappointment and also ability to fail miserably. I've seen the band three times. A total of seven times. Probably like eight. Eight or nine times. What about 10 times? 10, 12 times. Probably about 15. 20, 25? Probably seen the replacements 25 times. 30 times? 30 to 40? I want to say 60. 80? Maybe 100 and more, I think about it. No, I'm sure a couple hundred. 300 times. I can honestly say I spent more time with them than anyone else growing up. I spent more time listening to Please Meet Me than talking to any 
friend I ever had. For me, greatest band of all time. For me, the replacements made my world a better place. I mean, they were just a rock and roll band, you know, but also weren't the Rolling Stones just a rock and roll band. And we're back. Color Me Obsessed, a film about the replacement. It's sort of a, a variation on the, on the title, Color Me Impressed, which was a song of Nanny by the replacements. And actually, I, I think I went and made that mistake at the end of last month's show, saying that the film that we were watching was going to be called Color Me Impressed. And I'm sure that all our rock nerd listenership were saying, oh, he fucked that up. But um, never mind. I'm not, I'm not going to do that tonight. Anyway, so but it's, uh, in, it's in the spirit of the uh, replacements because they were pretty good at fucking things up, weren't they? So. Well, there you go. Absolutely. I, I, yeah. I, I feel like I've got an out now. That's that's it. You know, if it's good enough, <laughs> good enough for Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson. That's right. Good enough for me. If anything's worth doing, it's worth fucking up. So anyway, so this is a documentary, as I said, about the replacement, mainly told through the eyes of the fans and through uh, their peers and, you know, through management. But the thing that's been noted about this film is that there's no music and there's no replacements and it's all talking heads. There's no performance, no archival footage. It's just one fan after another, a few sentences intercut sometimes with multiple fans finishing off each other's sentences. So it's it's a peculiar method of uh, documentary-style filmmaking. Now, I, I believe in an interview that I read with Gorman Bouchard, he'd said that the lack of music in the film was an artistic decision. It wasn't because that they couldn't afford or right. get the rights to use right. the replacement's music. I saw a Q&A with him from a film festival screening oh, yeah. where he was talking about this idea that it's almost like how people talk about God, how, you know, you can't see God and God's not there to speak for himself, but everyone, you know, becomes uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and, you know, and everyone, you know, and there's endless ruminations on, uh, on God and what God means to people and, you know, how people have been touched by God and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, that's how he wanted to approach it. I don't know, in a way, to me, it almost feels kind of like a Scientology kind of thing where they, they're not there, people that have had experiences with them and people that were there to kind of uh, be a part of it, but they're not really there to, to represent themselves or to kind of um, mm. explain where they were coming from. You know, it, it, it's almost like this uh, fetishism type of thing. I, I think it's uh, it says more about things like, the, the documentary says more about things like obsession and fandom. It's it a you, uh, Well, of course, yeah, yeah. But, um, it, you know, it gives you a chronology of the replacements and their career, as it were. But it says a lot more about the people talking about the replacements and their attitude than it actually does about the band, I think, doesn't it? I saw him um, in the entry dressing room downstairs and he was you know, completely naked and he was surrounded with shopping bags full of clothes and uh, Carly was down there with him and she was kind of like pulling stuff out of a bag and holding it up and he'd say no okay so Bob's wearing a tutu cool that's what I expected corduroy sport coat and a tutu a tutu I like the tutu he was wearing a Prince 1999 shirt you know and it was a child size small you know skin tight purple tutu and uh, I don't remember what the footwear was, but, you know, 
that was a weird night. Sometimes he'd be wearing no underwear under his tutu. A lot of documentaries will have interviews with fans and with peers, and that's that's perfectly fine. I don't have a problem with that. I guess I'm wondering, is it more just because I'm used to the traditional style of documentary where there is archival footage, where the band does get involved, where and we, we get to hear music so we know as... Like, just imagine I was a newcomer to The Replacements, and I'm watching this thing, and I'm thinking, well, what made them so special? No, I can't remember who it was. Um, but someone earlier on in the film says they were the best band in the world and they were the worst band in the world which yeah. is something that a lot of people say and I think he was saying it because well, this is going to be a quotable quote but if I was a newcomer mm-hmm. I'd be thinking well what does he mean by that? That's kind of what I was about to say is that you know during the Q&A interview he says well you know for the fans they're going to get things that they might not have known before you know about the band and he said and for all the people that don't know who the replacements are, they're going to get the motivation to go in and seek them out or go and listen to them. And I'm like, yeah, but hold on, dude. You know, in my mind, I'm thinking it's kind of like imagine you're an alien. You know, I've never been to Earth. You don't know anything about human culture or anything. And all of a sudden you're sitting down watching some film about hot dogs. And people are talking about how great hot dogs are and the first time they ate a hot dog and what, you know, what the taste of hot dogs mean to them and everything. But they don't show any pictures of hot dogs and they don't show anybody eating hot dogs. You know, you don't have any stimulus aside from people explaining what it means to them. You know, it, it doesn't matter what the subject matter is. You know, you, you've got to give people some type of frame of reference besides saying, oh, this is fucking good. Well, what is yeah. it? It's like, yeah, but but what is it? Well, yeah, I wanted to be there, but what is it? You can string things out pretty far, you know, not to give my hand away too soon, but it's just, you know, there needed to be more of a connection to what really got people off about so much about the replacements. Everyone was giving them too much sizzle and there wasn't any steak. Yeah, but the, the stake would be the band themselves. I think there was a lot of in the film of people saying what the replacements meant to them. To use your steak analogy, they were the mushrooms and the onions that you'd put on the steak, but the replacements, the music, the band themselves mm. would have been the steak. And I mean, okay. That's so what, I, but that's what I'm saying is that the film is like, you know, 95% sizzle and there's and there's minimal, if not any steak. Yeah. And that's, mm. that's the problem is that, you know. There's like, someone telling you about how good the steak is, isn't there? But there's no right. steak to actually. But there's no fucking steak. Yeah. yeah. Right. I drove a school bus when I was 18, which is strange to think of in itself. Mm-hmm. But every Friday uh, from that album, I have these kids in junior high, and if they were well behaved on the bus, I would. I brought my boombox and I would play "Fuck School" really loud on, <laughs> on Friday, and they just went. They loved it. They just. I was their favorite bus driver for about five minutes there. I was saying to you guys off air that uh, I was having this conversation with Terry Frost uh, during the week, saying, look, you know, we've watched this film and, you know, we've all had a private discussion off air to say that we had a problem with the way the documentary was laid out. And I guess really, playing my hand, it wasn't a film I particularly cared for, but that's not to say that I didn't find the actual content interesting. I just found as a film, and it's, I mean, for what it is, it's a long film. It's like a little over two hours. Yeah, I would say it's it's definitely too long, isn't it, to to sustain what it's trying to do yeah right what they what they did 
would have made like a fantastic podcast maybe if we're listening to a whole bunch of people sort of rabbit on what they're doing effectively if you take away the visuals they're doing what we're doing right now but given that we have the film medium and we're watching you know people like the sound opinions guys say you know what they enjoyed and you're seeing you know robert christgau and okay there were a few people within the inner circle like paul stark and peter oh no peter jesperson wasn't even there the original guru or... Um, right, they're Epstein, yeah. Right, right. So it's very hard to sort of like talk a lot about the film without that sort of thing as visual. And, and anyway, oh. so so what I was going to say was like, I'd already gone and come up with the idea that maybe what we should be doing is, you know, still, we can still talk about some of the points raised in the film and so what the replacements mean to us or what we thought about some of the things that they actually had to say in the film, given that I think we're all sort of more or less agreed that it's probably not great as a film, but that doesn't necessarily take away from some well, of the content I, I that would, they discuss. Um, so I'd jump in here and say, I, I would say it, it's an interesting film, but it's, it's, it's an interesting documentary. It's an interesting way to go about it, but it's not a good documentary about the replacements. Right, right. Um, if somebody was actually to put out like a DVD, or I'm sorry, now a Blu-ray, of the replacements reunion concert or some of their vintage footage of their past from the 80s you know in the early stuff if this was like you know a supplementary feature with something like that oh, it'd be fantastic would, for that this yeah. would be great as a supplementary feature well that's effectively but, i guess that's what we've got this is this is a supplementary feature it's not a film no everything that you like about every modern band that you like right now you can find in a record called Tim. The most impressive thing is that the songs really do shine through these kind of terrible sheen of bad 80s production. Yeah. You know, Bastards of Young, come on. Like, that's an anthem. If ever there was an anthem, Bastards of Young is that anthem. Right. You know, being misfits, not fitting in, but then not being a misfit because there's so many other misfits. You know, it's like we'll all band together and will be the family we never were or never had. We've got a couple of things he suggested. So, you know, Terry said we should probably you know, make some sort of discussion about what we think does make a great music documentary. I mean, we've gone and discussed a few music documentaries, some that have been worked better than others. So, you know, probably take it down that road a bit. And Eric himself has sort of chimed in with a few questions that we should uh, probably... In fact, I think we already have gone and addressed, you know, what, what did we think about the format of the film as such. And he also asked the question, would this format actually work with another band if we didn't think it worked with this? But maybe we'll come back to that. So... Let me ask you guys, not just, I guess, not just for necessarily a rock documentary. Oh, no, no, I'll tell you, let's talk about rock documentary because that's our stock in trade. What do you think makes a good music documentary? I'm going to go back right to the beginning, right back to uh, where we started with the uh, podcast, to a little, a little film called uh, Gigi. <laughs> no, not, not not the musical. I was going to say, about, did we talk about Maurice Chevalier? I didn't remember that. Okay. No, no, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm talking about the man who specialized in endangered feces, uh, <laughs> the, the uh, one and only Gigi Allen, yeah. the documentary we did Hated. Now, imagine if that documentary was done in the same format as this one was, where everybody just talked about the exploits of Gigi Allen and what they experienced at his shows and just all of it without actually talking to him or showing anything. Right. But then we actually get to see the footage of Gigi Allen. We get to talk to Gigi Allen. And it's up to the viewer to kind of take away what they feel from it. And some people are repulsed. Some people think it's hilarious. And some people think he was a pathetic 
you know, troll. So, and, and it's all valid. But, but it, was I an, mean, it was an engrossing documentary, regardless. I mean, the, the music right. was not my scene, but I found it as no. engrossing as a film. Sure. But what I'm saying is that you actually got to see what people were talking about. Right. You got to see what got people agitated, excited. You know, you got basically the stake and the sizzle. People were able to take away what they wanted to take away from it because they were able to place a judgment on it. Personal, I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying people were able to kind of place a personal assessment on it. Whereas with this, the replacements documentary, there's no real way that people can kind of create an assessment. Because you're basically listening to somebody else's assessment, and you're taking yeah. their word for it, but you're not you really able context, to. You? Right, you don't have any context, and you don't yeah. really have any way to kind of judge yourself, you know. Because I mean, if you're able to hear some of the music, you can say, "Oh, I see what they're talking about," or "I get it," you know. Or you saw the footage from Saturday Night Live where Westerberg's like, "Come on, motherfucker," you know, like. You'd be able to say, oh, shit, man, they just guys were off their ass on national television. I, I get it. But there's none of that. And I think that, to me, one of the most important factors of any rock documentary or any music documentary, regardless, is that people have to be able to, you know, make some type of assessment of right. what they're talking about. And that comes in footage. That comes in interviews with the performers themselves. That comes with just more than just testimony. It has to be a multi-tiered experience. I mean, you know, and I'm not just talking about video. They'll have to give people more to sink their teeth into, aside from somebody just saying, oh, man, these guys are really fucking good, you know? It's, it's notoriously difficult to actually explain to somebody what makes something good when it's something that really does touch you and you get an awful lot out of how do you quantify what does that as you were saying tim you need some you need something to grab onto you actually need to hear the music because appreciation of music is such a subjective thing and you know that is one of the big issues with this documentary is that everybody's saying yeah yeah it's great but who are these people and why have they been chosen to tell you that you know when somebody is just a fan you know you, you could find sort of 200 with Peebo Bryson fans and make a documentary like this. Do you know what I mean? So it's, you, you need exactly. to actually, you need to see, you, you need to hear the music. Yeah, you need, I think you need to uh, see the band and have contributions from the band. And the talking head thing is fine. I'm all for that. But again, you, you need the context. And without hearing the music, people talking about it is just people talking. Here's the thing that's missing, though, is that, you know, you're really trying to basically convince people who aren't convinced. You're really trying to get people on board that really, you know, are not sure or don't know anything about the subject matter. And when you're preaching to the choir, you know, to anybody who's... It's easy. And to anybody who's a fan... This, this this is not really giving them anything else. This is not really giving them much more to chew on, you know? And yeah. Especially, especially if, you're, if you're building up a film uh, as it takes over several years of your life and it can be, especially with all the fundraising that one does now to, to get a film made, it, it has to be something that you're passionate about, something that becomes a labour of love. So why would you want to limit your audience to just a small target? Absolutely, you know, I'd, I'd yeah. want to be saying, hey, you, you never heard of The Replacements? Let me convince you why they're so great. I wanted to give three examples of rock documentaries that really, for me, completely work and why they work. The first one, it probably, I'd say, maybe the first rock documentary I ever saw. And some people don't even necessarily see it as less of a documentary and more of a mixtape. But I love The Kids Are Alright because it gives you a complete complete picture of who the who 
were. There's no narration. There's no new interviews. There's no consecutive story. They're going back and forward. They're going from the Smothers Brothers to what was then the very latest thing with Barbara O'Reilly done, made specially for the film, to going back to Shindig. And they're going all over the place. They'll show Keith Moon as a clown. They show Townsend as, you know, sometimes getting a little bit pretentious. They show Daltrey as the tough guy and Entwistle as a quiet one. But you really, by the end of it, you might not love The Who as a, as a band, but you certainly know what they are about. And that is done without any narration. And it's more its more like a mixtape. The second film that I thought really worked as a documentary is one that we actually have already covered. And that was the documentary about the Cosmic Psychos, Blokes You Can Trust. Because yeah. you get something like a narrative. It has like uh, yeah. three, three acts, if you will. Or, well, maybe two. I know. But you, you get the first, the first part of the show where it's established who these wild and crazy guys are and how they started and you know, the sort of music that they make and the sort of characters that they are. And then you get this other side just when you sort of think, all right, that's who they are. And then you see this other side of Ross Knight, Ross Knight the father, Ross Knight the weightlifter. And it, it, it's almost like a narrative you know, where they start, where they end. And you've found out not just a story about the band and their wacky hijinks, but, you know, you've found out internal band spats, but you also find out, you know, what sort of you know person Ross Knight is. You know, he has he's three-dimensional. He's not this cartoon character. Right. And right. once again, you didn't have to love the music. And that was a film that had interviews with their peers. You know, you've got King Buzzo and you've got Eddie Vedder and got to Mud Honey and all these other yeah, bands yeah. Who, who were testifying their love for them. But that was, you know, the, well, that was the onions on the steak, but you got plenty of time eating the steak yeah. itself. So I thought because that was sure. an, as much of a narrative style of documentary we, sure. we got we got everything we got the entertainment and we got the story and really i guess the third film that i hold to high praise because it's almost i wouldn't say necessarily like a suspense film but we got a story that the director wasn't counting on and that was the film about wilco i am trying to break your heart and for those of you who haven't seen that that's filmed uh, the director, Sam Jones, is just filming it. It was going to be like a puff piece. Filmed during the time of Wilco recording their album, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. But we, he ends up getting an internal spat between Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett. So there's this internal band tension. And then there's a story about the band being dumped off their major record label. And then they end up in a twist of fate getting signed to a new record label, which then gets taken over by the main record label, which kicked them off in the first place. So it, there's there's some level of black humour in there. there right. There's there's this just about this period of their life, and it's fascinating. Even if you don't know or don't care for their music, but the politics is fascinating, mm -hmm. and and the internal band friction. So you get to know something about how band mechanisms work, as get to finding out about this period in Wilco's life and all three I don't necessarily know whether I'd say they're the pinnacle of documentaries or not because I, I off the top of my head can't think of what others there are there might be better ones out there that I've seen but they're three mm -hmm. ones which I hold up very very high because there was right. a, a narrative structure or there was something that told you about who that band was what they stood for like it or not and that's where we come down to color me obsessed that we get right. third hand smoke Stone Knuckle. Now, it's really great to be here. Hello, mother. See, Tom Petty's teaching us all this groovy uh, rapport with the audience. We're, it took us two months, but I think I've got a few of it down. You and Bernie, as well as myself, we've read a number of books 
about you know musicians and uh, artists and all kinds of things in rock and roll history and that and with literature it comes down to you know people getting the authorized or unauthorized versions of people's tales yep. you know their biographies mm-hmm. and things well you can get away with that with literature but when it comes to film it's a different story and i'm thinking well, it's a different in particular- medium you're able to right you're right right to add more stake on you so right and i'm thinking in particular the last two films really dealing with kurt cobain and courtney love there was that Kurt, Kurt and Courtney, and then there was that Soaked in Bleach. And even even though both of those films did have footage of Nirvana and Cobain and Courtney Love, it was still far enough away from it that, you know, it was really kind of like this was being done without people's consent as a side thing. Yeah. And, it's, and it still really feels kind of like, not fraudulent, but it just feels like it's just stilted. With both of those films, they were somebody's interpretation of what's happened right. um right. And the, and uh, it, the, the official one not soaked in bleach the other one called oh, montage montage Hack. That, that was the one that francis bean did yeah that was the one his daughter did right uh no but, i don't think uh, she she did yeah. i think didn't courtney love um produce that one no she was so she, she was, was in- she she was booted off of that. Uh, it was actually okay. I forget the guy's okay. I forget the guy's name who directed Montage of Heck, but it was actually done in conjunction with Francis Bean. I know that. Okay, like the the more official, softer, rose colored glasses right. version of, of things. Right. So to, which is the you know the kind of polar opposite of that, isn't it? Right. But again, you know, to go, to go back to what we're looking at here, though, with you know, color me obsessed, it's the same kind of thing. It's somebody somebody else's take. On something that they, yeah. you know, that they occurred, you know, something that they were, you know, that they were able to witness, or their their feeling of a, you know, being a third party to something that that took place, you know. I'll put forward something here, and I'm, I'm sure you guys would agree with this that it is still important to get that periphery opinion because all too often we've seen books about uh, musicians that have, you know, the authorized biography translation. It's you know like the musician saying, I want you to make me look good. Don't tell any stories about how many groupies blew me. Yeah. Don't tell, tell any stories about how much cocaine I took. Make it all squeaky clean. We were just talking about Montage of Heck. That's exactly what that is. That's the kind of airbrushed, authorised version, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. Or then you get people like, you know, nobody knows Kanye better than Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the end, you need the healthy balance of both, and we're getting that sure. right here. It? But yeah. I'm guessing they were all sitting around drinking, and Paul probably made the suggestion, and I think I've been told that was the story, why don't we go just go get the tapes? Uh, he kind of was playing around with the idea, once a record comes out, he would like to have all the old records disappear. You know, he'd like to have them self-disintegrate, so people wouldn't have the old stuff to compare with. He only wanted people to listen to his new record. Then when he put out the next record, that one would disappear. He would have loved to, if the technology had allowed that, he would have really liked that. Look, I, yeah. I think probably what we should do is have a little bit of a discussion about some of the points raised in the film and about the music itself. So one thing that I found that's discussed on in the film and on a lot of websites as well is 
what are the more beloved replacements albums? We, and so within the boundaries of the film, there were those people who said, you know, like the early albums, sorry, Ma, forgot to take out the trash and stink. They're seen as being like a beloved breath of fresh air in the atmosphere that was, you know, to become the 80s. And they have the punk edge and the vitality and they don't have any of the political leanings of, uh, you know, other punk bands at the time, I guess. There were, you know, there were songs about, uh, you know, told from the perspective, I guess, like especially on Stink, you know, being in high school and wanting to get a job and, you know, Yeah, goddamn job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck high school. Uh, fuck yeah, school yeah, yeah. Dope smoking moron. And you get some people who said, like, okay, well, the last great album was Let It Be. And when you get to Please To Meet Me, that it was all downhill after that. From my perspective, I severely disagree. I want to know, from your perspective, is do you have a favourite era? Or do you see it just as a progression and it was all great? Or do you see uh, an album like All Shook Down as the replacements equivalent of the Marx Brothers Love Happy, for instance? Um, it's, it's interesting, from what you were saying, you know, people would tend to say you know, this album is, is the best placements album in, in sorry, in, in, uh, in the film. Some, uh, someone said Stink was like the greatest American album of the 80s. of the album would be, they would then move on to the next album and then they would all pretty much unequivocally say, yeah, this album's kind of sucky, but I still love it and it's still really great. And again, I think that's one of the issues with the documentary is there's nobody is really that subjective about it. They all love the replacement so much that, you know, every replacements record, yeah, that, that kind of sucked and the horns on that weren't a good idea, but I still love it. It's still a great record. So you don't get well, that real sort of balance in, in, in the film. Sorry, I'm going back to what we were talking about. I'm not actually answering your question, Morris. Here's the thing that I think is kind of interesting, right? A lot of the character of the replacements or who the replacements were, you know, everybody, you know, kind of looks at Westerberg and says that, you know, he's the prime engine that ran that little train. But to me, a lot of it also has to do with Bob Stinson, because I think mm-hmm. that Bob Stinson, he was kicked out of the band for being a drunk. And you, when you really think that to get kicked out of that band, for being a drunk. Right. <laughs> That's... I, I was going to say, there was a point made in the film, I, I think it might have been from Grant Hart of Husker Du. He said, yeah. you know you're in trouble when you're kicked out yeah. of a band like The Replacements for being drunk. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is that, you know, Bob was that lovable guy that everybody loved and he played sloppy, but he played with his heart and he played you know real and he just had that part of him that he just gave every time whether he was wearing a lampshade on his head or going on stage wearing a skirt nothing else but right that's, but that's, he, that's a great story yeah. i gotta say that but he but, but he gave it though he just he just fucking gave it you know people were willing to overlook the bruises and the, the broken lamps or whatever like they were willing to overlook it because they just loved the guy so goddamn much you know and i think that's in itself that's kind of an analogy to the replacements as a band there was the wonkiness and yeah there was the the cock-ups and there was the fuck-ups and there was the the misdates and there was you know coming on stage being too pissed but then everybody was just like you sons of oh we fucking love you guys come on (laughs) when when i got to see them it was the same kind of thing you know half 
half the audience was just cheering them on. The other half the audience was pissed because they were pissed, you know. In all the the moments of embarrassment or all the moments of half attempts, there was that one nugget that would shine through or that one song or that one string of three songs that they would just nail and you would just be like holy shit and right they were so in the pocket like once in a while it was like fishing right you'd sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait and then when they got when you got that hit it was like wow and then it was and then you'd have to sit there and wait and wait wait until another one rolled in it was just that's that's how they were you know and mm-hmm. I, I think there was someone in the film who said, I mean, that's what rock and roll is. I don't know whether that's, you know, just mythology or not, but, you know, he said, that's what rock and roll is. You you take, you pay your money, you take your chances, and these guys are passionate, and it's not going to be the same thing every night because that it, that's too much that's robotic, whereas, uh, you know, these guys were passionate. And, I mean, like, I was going to sort of say that one thing I really love that makes them sound, and I hate using the word authentic, but something where I can absolutely believe in what they're doing is Paul Westerberg's voice. To me, I think he has one of the greatest mm-hmm. singing voices in all of rock and roll. You listen to him and you think, my God, you believe everything that you're singing. You're really putting the passion. I mean, there are lots of passionate singers out there, but how many guys out there you know, can sing something like, you know, fuck school on the one hand and then do sadly beautiful on you know another record and it, it just tears your heart apart it's just something about it. he's not a trained singer he's not tr- he's not trying to emote he's just singing what he feels and i don't right. mean for that to sound wanky or pretentious but i i listen to him and i just think holy cow you're you're a singer i believe right mm-hmm. and so. even when they tried to do covers that were wa- like wonky covers like i mean right did you did you guys ever there was a show from the 60s and 70s in America called Green Acres? You know the show I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. The, sure, yeah. He, yeah. He, he's, yeah. He's got to be one charming motherfucking pig. Right. Well, anyways, you know, I've got a I've got a bootleg of the replacements where Westerberg's, you know, Green Acres is the place to be. <laughs> farm living is the life for me you know and they're doing it straight and and, and you're thinking okay this is kind of a novelty thing but he's so sincere about it and it's like it's the same thing you know them covering johnny be good and a lot of the early bootlegs of the replacements back in the stink era they were covering Buddy Holly. They were covering Chuck. They were yep. covering Jerry Jerry Lee Lewis. And what's ironic is that I've got boots of Husker Du that were doing the same thing. I've got a bootleg of Husker Du doing uh, I Don't Care, Buddy Holly. Wow. And, um, you know, it's insane how both of them, you know, were just, you know, there was so much influence of that raw rock and roll from the 50s. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's what really kind of polarized what the replacements were to me in the 80s from everything else. I mean, like when I first heard them, I got a you know cassette from a friend of a friend in high school, 90-minute cassette, and on one side was, you know, the Butthole Surfers and the Dead Kennedys and Bad Brains and Squirrel Bait and all these other bands, and then on the other side was the replacements. And like you said, Morris, they weren't about politics, and they weren't just screaming like, you know, and it wasn't like they couldn't play. They could play. Oh, my word, but they it, could play. But it was more what they were singing about was what I could directly relate to. It was just like, you know, 
I'm a customer. Well, it's um, it's uh, know, somebody like, makes a point in the in the film. I can't remember who, but they say that uh, the, the band really distilled that kind of teenage angst, that not belonging but wanting to belong kind of feeling that all teenagers right. go through. And really, and they, they managed to distill that better than anybody else. Well, and uh, the best the best song that they ever did that they that they ever did where they nailed it was you know the most famous one was Aiken to Be. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that yeah. is the definitive Teenage Angst song. You know? I guess the, the other great Teenage Angst song was, uh, was Unsatisfied. Look me in the eye, then tell me got it all and right. yet he's still yeah 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 and the other one the other one to me though is answering machine <laughs> your heart that's uh... oh yeah i mean how, how do you say i miss you to an answering machine you know how do you say i'm sorry to an answering machine i mean holy shit i have to admit though that for me there was a real definitive bridge like you were talking about morris what was the best album or whatever you know and i remember you know getting all the early stuff like hoot nanny and stink and sorry and all of that on cassette like through uh dupes so like we, we you know trading mm-hmm. cassettes but you know in high sure, school yeah and, and then we went on a field trip, and we go to Toronto, and I, I you know, ditched my my class, and we all head to the record store, and I pick up this album called Tim, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this isn't the same band, but it's got the same name on it, the same guys playing on it, this, so I, I get it home and I put it on, and immediately shit the bed. I thought, what the hell is this? Come on, guys, pick it up a little. Come on. Like, what the hell? You know, like, but then I thought, nah, there's got to be, you know, something's not right here, man. But then I'm like, well, I bought it. I got to listen to it. So then I put it on again and listen to Waitress in the Sky and right. put it on again. Listen to, you know, Here Comes a Regular. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. 
And then I'm thinking about where my dad was working over at the Legion in Canada and all the vets that would come in there and they'd set him up with drafts and the shot on the side and you see all these old men sitting there and keeping to themselves and being quiet until it was time to go home. And I hear that song and it just cut through me like a knife, you know. After that, man, I, I, I followed everything they ever did. See, I think that that's probably like a natural progression from, you know, what they, you know, how they started off with. And Eric reanimated every time he sort of has gone and done with it. The uh, album I love segments on Love That Album, always done like his own Love That Album compilation edition shows. He often has gone and referred to punk bands, which then went on to do something else, you know, country music or, or uh, rockabilly or something like that. And it's not like saying, right, well, you know, we've ditched the punk because that's for babies and we're going to do something better that's not the point the point is right, no. we've, we've done something and now we're exploring well now that we have these feelings we have these feelings of whatever anxiety or whatever we want to um i'm loath to use the word grow but like in you don't stay in high school forever you don't no you, you might you don't want to do the one style forever you might start doing a jazz record and then you might sort of like well where does that lead how do i experiment mm. How do I experiment with that? And that's what the replacements did. But they always had some sort of punk spirit. They always had some sort of punk attitude in what they did. And let's face it, you know, anyone who sort of thinks, hey, you can't be doing pop songs because you started out as a punk band. And you've already gone and said, Tim, like a lot of those bootlegs, and there's a ton of them out there. I've, you know, I've heard a few, are loaded with cover versions of the people that they admire. And, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, you know, those those songs were ab- about raw emotions. And I mean, really, when you sure. think about it, the songs about on Stink about growing up. I mean, that's just a Chuck Berry or a Buddy Holly song for the 1980s for the for the punk sure. generation. Absolutely. But I I kind of look at the replacements, their progression to me. This might sound kind of odd to some, but I kind of look at it like kind of like a diamond, you know. Diamond comes from a chunk of coal, and when it comes out, it's rough. And basically, it's just it takes a hell of a amount of scrubbing and effort to basically chisel it down to, you know, eventually what becomes, you know, a rare gem. And that's mm-hmm. just that's just what they did is, you know, they just went through all the effort and the scouring. And the, in the end, when you see what the replacements became and some of the music that they put out, and then everyone, you know, people that didn't know any better said, wait a minute, they went from that to that? And it's just like a diamond, like I say. Like, they came, they came out dirty and rough, and a lot of people liked the dirty and rough, but then, you know, it's like when they, when they kind of saw what they could become, it was something else. For some reason, Bob Stinson stole all this meat out of our freezer. What the hell did he want frozen steaks for? What was he going to do? Cook them in the radiator? I, I, you know, it made no sense. But we saw him leaving, and he stuffed all this meat, and we were just like, that's the dude from the placements. What are you going to do? Just wanted to bring up one more point about that. Because, you know, I said, well, what did they listen to? And actually, in the film, they do make mention of what the rest of the band was listening to, I think. So, uh, you know, Paul Westerberg, had been, you know, he was a fan of Roger Miller and Rod Stewart. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, Bitches Brew by Miles Davis, for goodness sake, and T-Rex, and Tommy Stinson was listening to Top 40 Syrupy Pop. You know, Tim, it's it's quite possible he was listening to The Captain, and I'm not talking about Beefheart, I'm talking about, you know, the guy with Tennille. Tommy Stinson (laughs) might have been going around singing, Love will keep us together. I'd love to hear the replacements do that. And and can't remember who was it said that, that they thought that the most punk rock thing about Bob Stinson was that he was a guy in a punk rock band who was a fan of Steve Howe of Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. That going yeah, going yeah. against the grain. So really, I mean, I've always gone and said that real musicians 
are the ones who are broad-minded. Music lovers, people yeah, yeah, really sure, sure, music. Yeah, absolutely. But people not just but, listen to the Rolling Stones and nothing else, you know. So. Sure. But, but I guess, but as as musicians, you learn to be you know the the best you can on on whatever your acts might be, and that might be so. Well, I can get this skill from listening to a Keith Richards riff, or I might you know sure. I might want to get some classical guitar skills, so I'm going to go listen to hear what John Williams does with. Uh, Bach lute concertos or something. I talked with somebody once years ago in an interview. I forget who it was I was talking to. Uh, I think it was the guy, the singer from the New Bomb Turks, Eric Davidson, hmm. where he was talking about, you know, how people, fans get really fickle about, you know, new albums that come out. He said, it's kind of almost like a waitress, you know, where you've got your favorite waitress in the restaurant. He said, you can't expect her to be wanting to serve you for eternity. It's like at, at some point, you know, you might want to stop and take her aside and say, listen, is this what you want to do for the rest of your life? Like, don't you don't you want to don't you have any uh, higher aspirations or, or you know, like some something else you want to do? Right. And that's just it is that, I mean, you know, with a lot of music fans, they get like, oh, well, fuck, they didn't put out the same album as they did last time. And yeah, these fucking sellouts or whatever, you know. Yeah. And if you really like what people do, then you figure I'm bored of listening to that last album because I listened to the shit out of it. They must have been bored of playing it, so they they must want to be doing something else. So then, you know, so then they try to do something else, and everyone says, well, why'd you go and do something else? It's not like the same thing you did last time. If you're really into a band and you really, really love what they do, then you kind of trust them to know where they yeah, want to go. Yeah, you follow them, you? Yeah, yeah. You'll follow them, right. A lot of people that saw the replacements as a bunch of snotty-nosed kids in Minneapolis were those people that grew up as lo- alongside the band, and they saw them, you know, on the All Shook Down tour, and you know, and with the last reunion that they did, things change. And I mean, you know, and change change is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not sure if I've got the chronology right. Okay, so I think the first time I ever heard the replacements was when a friend went and gave me a copy of the bootleg Shit Shower and Shave, which was recorded, I think, on the Tom Petty tour. Uh, the Rolling Stones are playing in Philadelphia tonight, but uh, we're better, so fuck them. Which I really, really loved, but I think the first time I actually went out and bought anything replacements related was a Paul Westerberg solo album, which uh, stereo slash mono. And oh, the grand grandpa boy. Uh, that's the, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah, and that was yeah. that's that's a long way from the replacement stink. It's not quite all shook down anyway. Because I mean, I guess those yeah. part of the criticism that the people in the film make is that oh, they became overproduced. I mean, I, I don't care what anyone says. All shook down is not an '80s sounding overproduced album. It's uh, it's not raw, but it's. You know, it still sounds like the replacements, for goodness sake. But the stereo mono sounds like a, an album recorded out in the garage with uh, Paul Westerberg playing all the instruments. And, I mean, and I say that as a positive. I love what he does there. But he's going back to his musical roots and his musical loves. Sure. Uh, so sure. I, I truly think that that sort of thing should be, you know, saluted and respected. And as, as you say, Tim, no one wants to be doing the same thing 30 years on into their career right. that they did at the very start. But here's the irony. Those that accuse the replacements of being overproduced and, you know, and trying to sound too pristine, how many of those people actually went and saw them live at that same time? Because if they saw them live at the same time, 
you know, they would have seen a very different band. <laughs> sure, sure. That, so know, say, that, that shit shower and shave bootleg, which is, you know, fairly late, I think there's post, there's certainly post Bob Stinson, it might have been towards the very end of their career. No, no, it's yeah, a, it, was po- it was post Bob Stinson. Yeah, Bob right. had been out of the band, it was Slim Dunlop, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. And it, 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 sound, it sounds like a rock and roll band on fire. It, it, it doesn't sound like they're trying to get perfection. They're, they're not Toto, for Christ's sake. They're, they're, no. they, they still sound they still sound like a balls to the wall rock and roll band and I, I defy anyone who says that they have a problem with where they went to tell me what is wrong with the band that I hear on that absolutely fantastic bootleg like the guy in the video you know, in the in the documentary says you know you, you buy your ticket it you takes your chances and I think you know there when you actually go online and you see some of the recollections of that petty tour some nights were amazing and some nights were less than stellar and you know when i got to see the replacements open up for petty was quite remarkable because it was hilarious at the same time it was uh groundbreaking for me just to actually stand within 10 feet of seeing them play you know five feet of seeing them play but at the same time it was kind of a, a, a sad moment because it was so many conflicting emotions it was kind of hard to explain i mean like they were up there m- being miserable not really wanting to be on that tour and doing everything they could within their power to basically get, you know, uh, Ixnade off the tour. And meanwhile, everybody, you know, the 25 of us, they were all standing, clamoring all in the front of the Banshell Pavilion, really wanted to see them blaze. And we got half of that. And the other half was basically just belligerence towards uh, Tom Petty, you know. And, you know, like I said to Bernie, you know, like when the security came out, they're telling everybody to sit down because people couldn't see. We're like, we are the people. Fuck off. And then you know, Westerberg's looking at the security guard. He says, hey, don't do me like that. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you know, and it's just that kind of, you know, and then they say, well, this next song is called Refugee. And then he's looking at Tommy and he said, Tommy, you don't have to play like a refugee. And Tommy's like, well, you don't have to sing like a refugee. You know what I mean? Like, and then, you know, or else they'd say, well, and then, and then the song right afterwards, they'd be like, this song is about an American girl who was a refugee, you know, like, and then they just go right in, you know, and then they'd play Route 66. It was just hilarious. And then I, you know, I read online about how they, they broke into Petty's trailer and they stole his wife's dresses. And then they went on stage wearing all her dresses and all, all kinds of shit. And they were trying to get Petty to drink. Tommy Stinson was basically like this little demon on his shoulder trying to get him to drink because Petty was a recovering alcoholic. And you know, Tommy Stinson was saying, come on, man, like, are you nervous? He said, Petty's like, I'm shitting a brick. He says, well, have a beer. No, I can't do that. It's going to open up Pandora's box. Oh, come on, man. One beer is not going to kill you. And Petty's like, yeah, it will. You know. So, I mean, like, you know, they, they were they were right fucking shit disturbers on that whole tour. And eventually they got the axe. But I don't know if it was a fear of success or, you know, just too much expectations. I don't know what it was. But, I mean, I just felt that Westerberg was always like, it's like a wedding. And you got a bunch of people that are at the wedding that can play music. And everybody gets up there and they pick up an instrument and they're just playing songs that they know for the wedding and it's a one-off. That's the way the band was, is that every gig that they played was like, well, this could be it. You know, tonight could be the night and after this, we'll pack it in. Who gives a shit, right? Like, we're here now, we're drunk, we'll just play what we play. 
And that's what made him so fucking great was that every night was like that. There wasn't any of this agenda. Mm -hmm. There was none of it. It was all just about night by night by night. You know, like I said, like the wedding band. It's just like, well, what do you want to play? Well, let's play this. Yeah, do you know how to play that? Yeah, sure, man. Let's, you know, and that's and that's what made them so great was that, you know, you caught them on a night when they know they knew what they were playing or you caught them on a night when, you know, somebody had one beer too many and that was it. Right, right. Well, I think we've sort of gone a long way from the film itself. Uh, I guess we sort of knew that that was going to happen. So final thoughts, anything to do with the film uh, as opposed to our own sort of assessment of, uh, of the band? Bernie, any final thoughts you want to um, bring about the band? Or, I think if, or, you're, or the band if, you want. if you're a Replacements fan and you've not seen this, I think you will get a fair bit from it. And as I said earlier, that you know, it, it says some interesting things about the nature of fandom and the nature of obsession. And there's, you know, there's a few interesting speakers uh, in here, and I think it says something a little bit about possible mental illness in places as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't yeah. mean that with the band. I mean that with some of the people in in the in the movie. So in that respect, it, it's kind of interesting. But I think as a documentary, it's not entirely successful. I think if, if you're curious about the replacements, go. Out and buy Let It Be and then explore the rest from there and um, maybe come back to the documentary at a later date. Sure. But uh, listen to the music. Right. They were fucking great. Mm. So. Yeah. Agreed. Tim, final thought? There's a new book that's actually just been released. Right, right. It's, it's actually all about the history of the band with actual contributions by the band. And I'm, I'm actually hoping that with the book and with the last tours that they did, the reunion... I'm hoping that somebody had actually uh, got that on film the last tour and or else somebody comes out with some type of definitive documentary in the near future about the replacements because yeah. I think it would be awesome and I mean not to not to knock you know the director of this film you know I mean just say well hey man you know you dropped the ball I mean, actually, what's kind of interesting is that the guy one thing that I didn't mention in the q and a was that he said that this was originally a project that was going to be done by a friend of his, but she didn't know how to approach the film. And she put it into his court. Right. And then um, and he said, well, and then one night he said he's laying in bed with his wife, and then he thought, well, I'm going to do this without without the music, without the band. I'm just going to do it with all the recollections, you know. And then I'm, I'm thinking this guy's a bit, a, a bit of a nut job because then after the Q&A, he says, well, and somebody said, well, what's your next project? And he goes, well, I'm working on a fictional film, but there's no script. <laughs> that's what he said oh and I'm thinking, really wow and i'm thinking the other documentary he was working on was his uh an ode to his favorite pizza restaurant but they weren't going to yeah. interview the chef no that's right <laughs> they, they, were, they were talking about pizza <laughs> right exactly exactly but if there's any band that deserves the you know the recognition and the acclaim man like it was the replacements fuck yeah they came out dirty swinging drunken but like I said, they were the greatest wedding band that ever existed. You know, it was Holy. just well, like yeah. you say, Tim. There, there's a, there's a great documentary there waiting to be made, and it's oh, it's kind of unfortunate that he chose to make this film about the replacements. If he'd have taken right. this approach and gone with somebody else, this be... would answer Eric's question because he wants to know: Do you think this approach would work for? A different band well i don't know if it would to be honest but at least uh, if he hadn't have done this about the replacements we'd you know we wouldn't have been tantalized in the way we were and then just kind of like oh okay 
yeah, loads of people like the replacements. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. There's our assessment of uh, Colour Me Obsessed. If you are obsessed and you want to hear what a lot of other people have to say, you know, maybe just turn the vision off and just listen to it like you would do us. Because, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say to you, don't listen to us as podcasters because, hell, we, we run on your adulation. But, um, but yeah, as, as a piece of film, maybe less so successful. But anyway, you, you be the judge. It's out there and uh, see what you think. But, yeah, I, I'd definitely go with uh, your assessment, Bernie. Go go by Let It Be or Stink or all shook down for that matter. Oh, actually, one thing I would say is I think the first replacements, like official replacements album I bought, I went and bought a best of called All For Nothing and Nothing For All. So two CD oh, yeah. set. The second one was like B-sides and things that they'd done for soundtracks or, 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 other, or other albums. Actually, they had a really interesting version of the song Cruella de Vil. Right, um, I was going to say. For 101 Dalmatians, which was very cool. But All For Nothing was... A best of, but you know, I really, I came back to listen to that over the last couple of weeks just to say, right now, because at the time I was saying, wow, it's a great album. And yet, in the interim, having heard all the official albums, I find it a very unsatisfactory best of album because it goes everything from Tim onwards. So, nothing off Hoot. Sire, right, right from Sire. Well, hang on, Tim Sire stuff. Was, was, no, I think, because wasn't Tim and Let It Be still on, on Twin Tone? No, I think um, Tim was the first major label one, wasn't it? Yeah, Tim was okay. Tim was the first yeah. one on Sire. Yeah, but, yeah. but certainly, let certainly Let It Let It Be was still on Twin Tone, and they yeah, I, yeah, they, yeah. They, Let It Be was on Twin Tone. Yeah. Okay, so they still get some stuff off that, but this album, I mean, it, it doesn't give you the diversity, and every song on there is a great song, but you want to sort of be able to put it up against what came before. You want to be able to hear that snotty note right. punk stuff, not just because they're great songs, but it gives you an honest appraisal of who the band was from start to finish so maybe i would i would say yeah in, in one of those rare cases even if you're a newbie and you want to dip your toes in the water a best of is not necessarily the the greatest place to go get yeah get let it be get get pleased to me and just like actually a, if you can find it there's a bootleg called when the shit hits the fans right right they, yeah, that's an amazing one film. too that's fantastic that's yeah, yeah. like that's it's probably eight, one of my all-time favorites yeah and, uh, it's, uh, it's not difficult to find if you know where to look, if that makes sense. In, indeed. <laughs> yeah. indeed. So, and just as a final, like, personal little bit of promo, I'm currently about to put out episode 88, I think, of Love That Album. And so, some, 12 months down the line, the 100th episode, it had wow. to be, is going to be Pleased to Meet Me and Bring the Family by John Hyatt. And if, you, if you've listened to Love That Album before from the early days, you know why we're re-attempting don't, that. Don't the, say that name. I don't want to place a curse on uh, C here. So uh, I officially invite you two gentlemen to join me along with Dr. Jeff Smith to talk about Bring the Family and we'll also talk about Please to Meet Me in Episode 100 if, oh, I, yeah. can, if, I, can, if I last that long. So uh, anyway, more, more replacement goodness to come your way. Yeah. So we're at the end of uh, See Here, episode 26. And Tim, uh, it's your choice for the next episode. So um, lay it on us. All right. Well, I thought I'd uh, pull a treat out for you guys. So for the next episode, we're going to be uh, watching a rather special little film called Rattle and Hum. Not! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Tim, oh, you, you obviously still haven't found what you're looking for. Oh, oh. Well, I know I know what I'm not looking for, and it's on the <laughs> bottom of my shoes. And it's a little fucking Irishman named Bono. <laughs> anyway, no, 
all joking aside, we're going to be uh, going to my motherland, to Canada, to an old classic uh, film from uh, director Bruce McDonald. It's a film called the Hardcore Logo. That was a film with Hugh from the Headstones, the singer and the uh, singer from the Headstones, Canadian punk band Hugh Dillon, and uh, it's a uh, quasi documentary in the vein of Spinal Tap right. about the uh, reunited '80s Canadian punk band Hardcore Logo, who get back in the van for one last tour across the country, and the uh, hijinks then ensue. Nice. I I don't remember, but somewhere early on in the show's lifetime, someone in our community sent a note saying you really should cover Hardcore Logo. So that's been on my radar for a long time. And as I think I've said to you, Tim, Highway 61 is a big favourite film of mine. I remember seeing it here in Melbourne at our old Valhalla Cinema. So any of our Melbourne listeners who uh, will remember the Valhalla Cinema in Richmond. Hardcore Logo is a kind of film in the same way that Spinal Tap is where... Some people will find it uh, extremely humorous, and other people will find it extremely uh, relatable. I mean, you Seems know, good. where the, 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 that's good. not funny, that's my life, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Some people say, this is a document about Spinal Tap. This is a documentary. This isn't a narrative. Right, right. <laughs> Smell right. my glove. All right, so yeah. uh, that'll be our episode for April 2016. Thank you very much for uh, listening to the show. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com or you can post anything that you want about music-related films on our Facebook page. So that's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seehere. And I think that's covered all the housekeeping sort of stuff. Anything else to add, gents? We all, we all done? I just wanted to say, man, you guys did a hell of a bang-up job, you know, about Brian Wilson, um, you know, in my absence. And I really quite enjoyed the episode. And I, I listened while I was on uh, vacation in the sandy beaches of Thailand. And uh, I'd like to thank one Mr. Uh, Frank Sandal Padre. Yep. And I'd also like to thank uh, Tish Greers. They They did do a, an absolute fantastic job. And uh, Tish and Frank, if you're listening, you know that you're welcome to join us again anytime you wish. In fact, I'll be begging for it. So Absolutely. No, because they need to get rid of me after screwing up. <laughs> <laughs> you're on the A-team. You're the, uh, you're the Bob Stinson of the uh, the Sea Hair crew. <laughs> right. That's right. right. That's right, man. I'm on the way out. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, guys. We appreciate it each and every episode, you know, and uh, help spread the word. You know, and uh, we really hope you enjoy listening to us because, uh, you know, more than we enjoy doing it. Hang, hang on, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> All right. What Tim said. Yeah, what he said. Okay, thanks very much, and uh, we'll be back in April with uh, a little bit of hardcore logo for you all. So be nice That's to right. each other, watch some great films, listen to some fantastic music, and we'll see you in April. All the best. Cheers. Get a goddamn job. Later. From the very first day.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 